Father, we do pray that indeed, in whatever it is we do, God, that you would be seen as most valuable, most precious, that you are most dear to us. Whether in this life we have great things to rejoice in because of great victory and great blessings or whether we experience great and deep, profound sorrows, Lord, may you show us how you are more valuable, more precious, more dear to us than any of those. You are a God who sees us in our weaknesses. You see us in the sorrows. You see us in our struggles. And yet you tell us profoundly that you will use these things for our good and for your glory. And God, you remind us that even the good things that you have freely given us to enjoy, that all of these things are to be used and enjoyed for your glory, that they are more precious for having been enjoyed for your sake. God, these are mysterious things. These are difficult things to try to live out and flesh out. And so indeed, as we've just saying, we do ask that you would make us the kind of people that truly treasure you above all things, that you would be uppermost in our affections, that there would be no rivals in our hearts that would distract or dissuade us from the reality that you are precious and you are the source of all joy. So, Father, we give you thanks ahead of time as we look in Ephesians 1 at how you have revealed to us the purpose of our union with Christ, that we are to praise you and to give glory to you and to show that you are more valuable than anything else in this world. And Father, we also acknowledge today on this Mother's Day that gathered in this place more than likely are women who span the spectrum of great and deep sorrows and also exceeding joys. Women who have lost children or unable to have children. And yet there are many other women who are very glad to be moms and give you praise and thanks for it. So even in this assembly with the potential like that, Lord, we ask God, that you would give these moms a sense that you are more precious, more valuable, even than the precious, valuable children you've given, and even more valuable and precious than the children you've withheld. So, Father, thank you for how you have been attentive to us, how you care for us, how you love us. And in that way, Lord, we do pray for those women gathered in this place who are deeply hurt for not having mom here this year or for not having children of their own comfort them be with them encourage their hearts in you and Lord we do pray for all those moms who are wondering where the energy and the strength is going to come from and oh God we praise you because you are abundant in your supply so we commit this day to you and we ask you bless it and encourage us all as we come now to your word to hear from you and so we ask God speak and we'll give you the thanks in Jesus name amen amen ah uh, good morning church you survived the wind I see so that is good 
couple of announcements for you as we uh, begin today. Ladies, there is a, a special event coming up on May 20th, which is just in a couple weeks. At 7 o'clock, uh, there is going to be what is called women's, or excuse me, simply women. And uh, at this event, uh, it's going to be a good time to talk about an important uh, matter that is so uh, culturally uh, prevalent. And that is there's going to be a panel of uh, speakers and some women are going to talk about the whole notion and concept of biblical justice and whatnot and what that means for us and, and all that. So I think it'll be a good, lively discussion. And uh, the only thing that can make lively discussion with uh, fellow believers um, more, I guess, I don't know, make it better, is if you do that while you eat food. And so uh, we've also, um, for this evening, uh, are going to be having a dinner that is provided. And so not only do you get great conversation, uh, but you also get dinner together as you eat and talk about these important issues. So I want to encourage you, spots are limited, sign up quickly. So that's May 20th, just in a few weeks, seven o'clock. Uh, I want to let you know too that we're starting uh, a new ministry. It's not necessarily new in the sense of we never thought about it before, but it's new in the sense of we're beginning to organize it. And the ministry that we have begun to organize is, is the idea that God has placed us in his providence and sovereignty here for this time and in this location. And we know that God is at work in our community. We know God is at work in our neighborhoods. We know that God is at work all over. And we're hearing these stories more and more of how people, many of you all, are serving your neighbors, are serving your community in one way or another. And with that, we are thinking it would be really good to get people together who are already serving uh, neighbors and friends or those who want to do it more and more and want to know how best to do that, to get them together to talk about what they're doing and what we could do and things like that. And so we started a, we're starting a ministry uh, called Scent. And it's the idea of we are sent to engage with neighbors. There's many people that we live among who do not yet know Christ, who probably don't go to church, are not discipled. Uh, and there's also people in our community that are unreached, uh, they're underserved in one way or the other. And so what we wanna do is cultivate uh, meaningful, lasting relationships with people by coming alongside of them and serving them to the glory of God. Now, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but down Shady Willow, they're building a whole new uh, place for people to live. There's 200 and some units, condos, I think it is. And uh, the idea was, wait a minute, they're building all these places for people to live. It's within walking distance of Golden Hills. So should we do nothing about that? And the answer is clearly no. We, we should not do nothing. Or to put it positively, we should do something. And the idea is, what is it we might be able to do there and other places in our neighborhood and community? So we want to get people together to begin to prayerfully consider uh, what it is that God might be uh, raising uh, many men and women up to, to serve in that capacity. So there's an informational meeting next Sunday, and it's going to be at 2 o'clock uh, to 3.30. Um, anyone's welcome to come and, and hear what's going on through that ministry, sent ministry. There's information in the, in the bulletin. Uh, there's information in the, uh, uh, on the website. You can get it through the app. Uh, traditionally, what we do here uh, at Golden Hills on Mother's Day is we tend to give out flowers to all the moms, but it became a kind of a, a weird situation. Here's, let me give you an example. Sometimes young women will be walking up and we're kind of like, I, I don't know, I don't know. Are you a mom? Am I allowed to ask that? 
Or you would see not so young women and you're like, oh, you're old enough to be a mom. Can I say that? I don't. And so it just was really awkward. And then sometimes ladies were like, no. And you're like, oh, geez, that's so embarrassing. So here's what we decided to do. In lieu of the traditional gift of handing flowers out to moms and making uh, most of us uh, uncomfortable, (laughs) instead we wanted to do this. On this Mother's Day, we were thinking, how can we continue to bless women, moms, families? And so we are going to support four different ministries that provide Christ-centered support and care to women, children, and families. So we're giving a monetary gift above and beyond what we normally do to four specific ministries that, that uh, really focus on this. When you leave today, what you're going to see is four tables underneath the overhang. And you're going to see four ministries that are about ministering to moms and families and also young children. So here's the four ministries. They have little QR codes. Scan them. You learn more about it. Uh, folks are behind the tables. They would love to talk to you. One of the ministries is Options Health. And Options Health is a ministry that is a crisis pregnancy ministry, and they also have expanded to do more things for young moms and um, men as well, young families, things like that. The second ministry is called Shepherd's Gate. Shepherd's Gate is a ministry locally that really ministers to women who are the victims of abuse, various kinds of abuse. Another one is called Safe Refuge, a ministry that is here local that really focuses on children who need a home because they're in an emergency situation where they need to be removed from their home that they're currently in and put into a safe, uh, like foster home, temporary foster home. And another ministry called Foster the City, uh, a ministry that uh, has its fingers in all over uh, the Bay Area, connecting churches together to try to alleviate the demand that is out there for care and homes for foster kids. So I want to encourage you as you leave today, go look at those four ministries, uh, investigate more about what they are, maybe even how you can uh, join them in the ministry that they're endeavoring to do in our community. But we wanted you to know that we were going above and beyond putting more resources in their hands to do the things that need to be done on this Mother's Day. And so go and uh, say hi to them. And uh, we as a church want to make sure that we're putting our money where our mouth is. So if we say we care about kids and we care about... um, moms and things like that, then here's what we're going to do. So there's that. But not only that, we know that people love to take pictures on on Mother's Day. Uh, We know that this is a good family time. So we set up two little photo areas to the left as you head out, outside, there'll be a little area uh, that you can go and take a a family picture. If you have a larger family, that side is a little bit bigger. The one on the right side as you head out, it's a little bit smaller. So if it's just a couple of you, or you can do both, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but there's places to go and take pictures. So um, hopefully uh, moms and dads, you, your hair is still presentable, uh, even though it's been windy and you can take your picture. So anyways, all that good stuff. Um, we're going to continue in this series. This is week three. Week one, we had talked about the provenance of our union with Christ. What does union Christ mean? What does union with Christ mean and where does it originate? What is its source? We talked about how God is the source behind it all. The second week we talked about another P and that is what union with Christ produces. What effect does it have in us? And what we know is the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ but also indwells us, giving us the power to kill sin and to live righteously. And that is something that transforms your life in such a way that you actually develop a new identity. The Bible calls it being a new 
creation or a new creature. When we talk about this union with Christ, we see that God is behind it and in all of it. God is the source of our union with with Christ. He is the one that chose us before the foundation of the world. It's God in the Holy Spirit that unites us to God the Son who died for us and rose for us. We also know that it is God who brings about the transforming work of the Holy Spirit so that way we become more and more like Jesus as we continue to live in faith with him. And we know that the more we die to ourselves, the more we live to God and God is involved in all of that. So put it plainly, here's what I mean. Being united to Christ changes our status with God. We go from being his enemies to his children. And it also profoundly changes our identity. That is how we view ourselves. And so what we're going to see in Ephesians 1 today, verses 3 through 14, is we're going to look at the things Paul says which are transformative for our identity. And we're also going to see three separate statements that the Apostle Paul makes regarding the purpose of our union with Christ. What's interesting about Ephesians 1 is really just one long sentence. Like if you want to learn how to write well, don't model Ephesians 1. Uh, The Greek scholars tell us that the Apostle Paul basically writes one run-on sentence. And uh, the, the people who have translated into English for us have done us a favor by giving us punctuation and paragraphs. And so we're grateful to that. So... We're going to look at verse 3 through 14, which again is just one really long sentence. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this and I'm going to highlight different phrases or words which indicate our new identity in Christ, who we are in him. And I'm also going to show you the three statements or phrases that refer to our purpose in our union with Christ. Here we go, verse 3. And I'll just stop along the way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we are spiritually blessed in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So we are wanted, we are chosen. That we should be holy and blameless before him. God desires for us to live holy lives, and we are able to do so. In love, he predestined us for adoption. We are beloved and we are adopted. We are welcomed into God's family. We are adopted to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And here's our first phrase that indicates the purpose of our union. It's to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has uh, blessed us in the beloved. In him, that is Jesus, We have redemption through his blood. We are redeemed. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Of his grace, we are forgiven. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We are reconciled to God. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the, to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We are recipients of God's inheritance. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ may be, here's our second statement of the purpose of Christ, or the purpose of union with Christ, to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Here's our third statement. To the praise of his glory. And you summarize these things, and what we could say in a nutshell is that we are recipients of spiritual blessings. We are chosen in Christ. We are set apart from sin for God. We are beloved, we are adopted, we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are reconciled, we are benefactors, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we are secure in Christ. If you were to ask yourself the question, who am I in Jesus, that would be your answer from this text. Now what is the purpose of that? The purpose is to praise the glorious grace of God, verse 6. It is, verse 12, that God's glory would be praised. And it is, verse 14, that God's glory would be praised. Last week we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we read about how anyone who is united to Christ is a new creation. They have a brand new identity. Here's what we read. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Now what does that mean? It's two parts. The old self has passed away, and behold, the new self has come. The old is dead, the new is already here. The old no longer exists. The new has come in fullness. This is not merely a reset. This is talking about something new. Okay, this is not refurbished. This is new. And when you add to this text this one, it is because of God that you are in Christ. You start realizing that it's God who is the source of our being made new and our being made new means we have a new identity and the question about identity is who am I? You are the list of these things and you are those things because God did that to you. God did that to you. And when Christ you are united to Christ, here's what happens. He becomes to us wisdom from God, so that way you can know what is good, better, and best. Jesus becomes to us righteousness, that is not only conforming us to live like him, but also the very righteousness we need to be welcomed into God's presence. We have that in him, and also Jesus is our sanctification. He is the one who works in us through the Spirit to make us more and more like him. And also we have in Christ redemption, that is forgiveness of our sins. God is the one who did that. He's the one that does that to you. You don't do that for yourself. Now why that's significant is because being in Christ means you have a new identity and means you are a new creation. The old person is gone, the new person is here that came from God, it's worked out in God, and his whole purpose is God. Therefore, the answer to the question of what is my value, who am I, what is my purpose in life, is always and profoundly something given to you by God. 
It is not, as our culture teaches, as I'm going to talk about in a second, something that you create for yourself. I'm going to spend some time talking about identity because it's significant in this passage that we understand it. And it's also significant given the fact that we live in a culture that tells us identity formation or creation or discovery is the most important thing about what it is to be alive. So if we as Christians say, man, true life is found in Jesus, we need to be communicating to our culture and our society that what that means is your truest life is not found within yourself. Your truest life is found outside of yourself that transforms yourself. So what is an identity? It's really an answer to the question, who am I? Our identity is the self-concept we have of what our value is as a person, what our worth is, what our purpose is, and it gives meaning to our life, okay? So your identity is what gives meaning to your life, your purpose, your value, how you answer that question, who am I, and what is my worth? Now, there's a lot of ways that you can form identity today. There's tons of ways. So I'm going to give you a couple examples to kind of help you understand this concept because it's so important. There are many sources, for instance, like groups. You could be a part of a group. I know that this group exists. I looked it up. Adults who love Lego. <laughs> that could be your identity. You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm part of that group. Or there's men in our church who are part of the group Gideon. So you identify yourself. I am a Gideon. I am a, an adult who plays with Lego. Okay. Or it could be your hobbies. I am someone who loves baking. I am someone who enjoys fitness, okay? It could be your career. I am a teacher or I am a small business owner. That is who I am. That's my purpose in life. Or it could be your personality. I am an introvert and therefore that's all you need to know about me and that kind of thing. <laughs> It could be your relationships, how you relate to other people and in what way you relate to other people. So somebody could say, I am a homeschool mom or I am a cousin of someone famous. Third cousin, twice removed, but who's counting? I, like, I know famous people. That's part of my identity. That's what makes me valuable. Or it could be your achievements. I graduated college summa cum laude, or I'm the first in my family to accomplish this, that, or the other. Another formation of identity can come from your personal origins. You could say, I'm Dutch, or I come from a family of immigrants, or I am, in a, uh, I am a minority of some kind. You have to realize that until recently, every human being came to a self-conception based on something outside of themselves. Every single human being until recently understood who they were based on things outside of themselves. For instance, you learned about who you are from your parents. That's one source outside of yourself that helps you to understand the question, who am I? Your parents can help you or they can hurt you. They can say things like, you are special and gifted and no one is ever going to be like you and you should always get a trophy for everything you ever do because you're always amazing. And we think we're helping our kids, but then, you know, 
they don't get the trophy and they lose their mind. Or we can help them by understanding the world is difficult and you're going to face great difficulty, but I'm here to help you to understand that in Christ you can weather any storm. More helpful. Or from your parents you can learn that you are a loser. You can learn that you never add up. You'll never measure up. They're always disappointed in you. Or you could be abused. Or you could learn something about your identity based on your geography. I know this is a crazy one. You're like, what? How does that? No, seriously. People take great pride in where they're from. Or as the saying goes, I've heard some people who just recently moved to Texas like, yeah, I'm raised in California, but I got to Texas as quick as I could. Okay. But you hear of people who grew up in the south or you hear people who grew up on the coasts or you hear of people who grew up a hillbilly or whatever your geography can be your identity your ethnicity can sometimes be a way in which you develop self-conception i am of this culture that culture this ethnicity that ethnicity so that's how i understand myself your station in life you could be born into a generational poverty a family of generational poverty you could be born into a family of generational wealth You did neither of those things. You didn't make yourself poor. You didn't make yourself wealthy. You were born into it, something outside of yourself. Today, your self-conception is no longer about the institutions outside of yourself, like your school, your church, that form you. It's no longer your family. It's no longer any of these things. Today, your identity or self-conception, it is taught, comes from within yourself. You come to understand yourself from the source of yourself. Today it is taught that you come to form your identity by turning inward. And when you turn inward, you evaluate your intuitions, you evaluate your emotions, and you evaluate the potential of what one thing or another, whether it can make you happy. And so when you make those evaluations, you turn inward, psychologizing and evaluating the emotions that are there and the potential for happiness, that becomes the source of self-conception and identity. Nobody, I don't believe anyways, as a young child will wake up and go, I think the truest me is to be homeless. But people end up that way. And what we tell people to alleviate that is try harder, do better, do all this stuff. Because you have inward what it takes. As if there's no external circumstances that are at play at all. And that's crazy. Here's what Carl Truman writes in his book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a really thick book. I recommend it to everyone to read. However, if you don't have that kind of endurance, I understand He came out with a shorter book, (laughs) which I can recommend. It's called Strange New Worlds. I highly encourage you to read it. And in that book, he writes this. For me to be a self, for me to have self-conception, to have an identity, it involves an understanding of what my purpose of life is, of what constitutes the good life, and how I understand myself, which is the self, in relation to others in the world around me. What he's saying is my identity is really about how I understand what 
I conceive as the good life based on how happy I will be. So I choose to do this or I choose to do that or I choose not to do this, I choose not to do that or I choose to be with these people and not these people because in so doing, I believe I will be more happy with that decision and in finding that happiness, I will finally discover the hidden inner me that I have yet to discover. Have you heard of this stuff in our culture today? You're probably not listening for it if you haven't, because it's everywhere. As Kanye West says, if I can't be me, I got nothing. And we're like, yeah, what does that even mean? If I can't be me, I got nothing? Like, I can't be anyone but me, right? No, 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 we mean something different nowadays. There's me, Phil Ward, born in Vallejo, California, raised in Fairfield, California, went to Biola University, the fairest institution in all the land, <laughs> and now the senior pastor of Golden Hills. There's only one me. None of you are that. And yet in our culture today, we understand or we believe that there's something more than that. Yes, you are those things, but what is the real you? What is the hidden you? Okay. We're going into deep waters here. The modern person, and here's a, a, I put three quotes from celebrities together and I made them make sense. Basically, here's a quote and then dot, 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 here's another quote. Listen to this. I am the only one who can decide the purpose of my life. The way I feel, my pursuit of happiness, I believe this will guide me to my purpose in life. I know the good life when I find it because I know that in that moment it will feel right. It's going to give me happiness. And I know that when I'm, I'm in my happy place, I'm just going to let the world know who I really am. I finally discovered the real me. My quest is over. I found it. I found who it is that I am. And I don't care what people may say or think. This is me. Take it or leave it. And many of us are like, yeah, that's super inspirational. Yeah. Because that's a Disney-fied way of thinking. And also it's codified in our society. Two rulings by the Supreme Court. Here's what 1992, 2015. Here's two rulings by the Supreme Court. Listen to this. The Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach. A liberty that includes certain specific rights that allow persons within a lawful realm to define and express their identity however they choose. So at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. Meaning, you are allowed to be whatever, any, anything, so long as it's legal. You could do whatever you want, be whoever you want. And if it's not legal yet, don't worry about that. Eventually, we'll just legalize it. But the Constitution allows you to be anything and everything according to what? According to your inner feelings, intuitions, and quest for personal happiness. And nobody can infringe on that at all. Nobody can tell you otherwise. So there's nothing more important in our society than allowing people to identify themselves in whatever way they see fit and unfortunately, this has actually, this mindset has crept into the church. 
There's a guy named Jonathan Cruz who wrote a book, Identity in Christ, and he talks about how the identity thing that's going on in our society is actually a false gospel. Here's what I mean by that. Everyone has a gospel, regardless of your religious beliefs. Everyone believes something is wrong and something can fix it. Everyone. So the identity gospel is something's wrong. I don't feel happy. So I will go inwardly and try to discover the real me and then I will be happy. So Jonathan Cruz writes this. He says, the false identity gospel teaches that God simply wants you to be content with who you are in all of your social circles, in your sexuality, in your gender expression, in whatever. As long as you are being true to yourself, it is taught you are being true to God. As long as you are following your heart, it is taught you are following God. And therefore, Scripture gets twisted or tossed out to ensure that people feel no pressure to conform to anything outside of themselves. Instead, they are free to set their own course. And then he goes on to say this. A good summary of this way of thinking is the chief end of humanity is to glorify yourself and enjoy yourself forever. Glorify yourself. The word glory means to show value, to see it as beautifully valuable or worthy. So if the point of life is to glorify yourself, it is to find inner value in yourself and to make sure everyone else knows how valuable you are. And in that pursuit, to enjoy yourself. Think about that. The greatest purpose of life is to glorify yourself and to enjoy yourself forever. That's basically what our society teaches. The Bible doesn't shy away from identity. Let me show you a couple verses. Paul says, so you must consider yourselves... This is where I get the way of phrasing identity as self-conception. So your self-conception, the Bible teaches, should be this, if you are united to Christ as Christians. That you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let that sit there for a second. Another identity text. I have been crucified with Christ, united to Christ. And so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you put these two verses together, you can see that Christianity and the Christian identity that God gives you by being united to Christ is all-encompassing. It is centered on Christ and it operates by faith in Christ to the extent that all meaning and purpose in life centers on Christ. So, the way our society and culture is teaching identity formation today is the exact opposite to the way the Bible teaches it. And therefore, the Bible is countercultural in this regard. 
that the chief end of man, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism in the 16th century, 17th century says, it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of life? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. These two things do not go together. The most important thing in life is to glorify me and enjoy myself forever, or the most important thing of life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You can't have it both ways. As Jesus said, you can't serve God in mammon. A biblically informed identity is countercultural. You see, the culture today that we live in, the society that we live in today, will say that your identity originates within yourself. It's a process of self-discovery. But the Bible teaches that the true life-giving identity is found outside of yourself. It is something which is given to you, not created by you. It is not something that you discover or that you fashion. It is something that you receive by faith. An identity in Christ is not centered on self, but centers on Christ. In fact, the self is crucified, not glorified. And so a biblically informed identity provides a completely different mindset on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a believer. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to work this out for you in practical ways to show you, because I know, I know, especially, the, I know there's middle school students and high school students and, and probably college students that are here with us. And I understand that what I'm saying is crazy. You think it's nuts. And I'm trying to help you understand, no, what the world and society and culture is teaching, that you have some hidden identity inside of you that's yet to be discovered, that you need to unleash for the world. That's crazy. And I'm trying to open your eyes to the lunacy of what's going on and show you not just something different, but something better, better. Okay. There's a book by a guy named Rankin Wilburn. What a name. Rankin Wilburn. He writes a book called Union with Christ. He's a pastor in Southern California. I found this book incredibly helpful and explaining, explaining and applying union with Christ. And so if you want to learn more about that, that'd be the book I'd recommend. What he does is he highlights how this way of identity formation that I've been describing is actually not producing the kind of positive good results that we think it is. It's just we're not taking enough time because we're assaulted by iPhones and noise and music and Netflix that we don't spend the time to sit and re really reflect on it. We just distract ourselves with more noise so we can pretend that life is better than it is. What he does is he, lists, he, he identifies this professor named Barry Schwartz who has this popular TED Talk. You know what a TED Talk is? Uh, technology and uh, whatever, and entertainment and design. People give 20-minute talks, and you know it's profound and life-changing and all this kind of stuff. That's kind of what people want me to do here in preaching. But anyways. <laughs> I do a TED Talk, it's just three of them at once. <laughs> and in this TED Talk by Barry Schwartz, he says this, individual freedom and personal choice are now the official dogma of our society. This is not a Christian man, this is a professor at a secular university who says personal choice 
and freedom, individual freedom, are the dogma of our society. What does the word dogma mean? Religious doctrine. (laughs) What he's saying is, the sociologist, what he's saying is, America has a new civil religion. And the new civil religion is autonomy, personal choice, and individual freedom. And if anything goes against those things, that is blasphemy. And think about it. We as Christians do not welcome blasphemy. It's horrible. How dare you talk like that? And yet at the same time, if you go against personal choice and individual freedom, people will respond as, how dare you talk like that? So the Roe v. Wade discussion that's happening in our culture today, this past week, is it really a bunch of people are bound and determined to kill babies in the womb? Is that really what they're arguing for? No. They're arguing for what? Choice. Choice is supreme. Choice is supreme. So, when we had our time where it was mandated that you had to wear masks, people lost their minds. No, man, never be. Why? Choice. This is blasphemy that you would go against my personal choice and my individual freedom. How dare you? So, in our culture today, it's believed that individual freedom and personal choice is the means by which we will experience utter satisfaction and eternal happiness. Is that true? All right. It's go time. Firstly, I want us to think about this. When you have unlimited freedom, it does not give you great fulfillment It produces most often paralysis. Paralysis. I don't mean like physically, like you can't move, but it creates a decision paralysis. When you have an infinite amount of options to choose from, it's very difficult to make a choice. There's a difference between going to the Cheesecake Factory and In N Out. (laughs) I don't worry about lines at In N Out. Because there's a few choices, and if you're in the know, there's a couple other ones. But by and large, there's choices, there's like three of them max. And you just go in there and pick one of three. You go to the Cheesecake Factory, and you're just like, what are you looking at? Page 88 has one. It's really good. (laughs) And so when there's lines at the Cheesecake Factory, you're like, nah, let's go somewhere else. Because you know, nah, man, decisions are hard. When you have an infinite amount of decisions, it paralyzes you because you don't know which one to choose because if you choose one choice, you're rejecting the others. But what if one of the other ones is better than this one? Oh no. Which leads me to a second observation. When you have infinite choices, it increases your anxiety. Here's what Dr. Elaine Ehrenberg writes in her book, The Weariness of Self, another recommended book not a Christian book. I know that may shock you. I don't read Christian books, but anyways. She explores why depression has become the most diagnosed mental illness in the world. And here's her conclusion. 
Anxiety and depression are on the rise today because of an increased feeling of inadequacy, which is arising from a social context in which success is attributed to and expected of the autonomous individual who exercises their personal choice. Let me simplify that. Anxiety and depression are arising today because we know that if you make any choice, you run the risk of making a wrong choice. And if you make a wrong choice, oh no, what does that mean for you? But if you do make the right choice, you also realize, oh no. If I'm telling the whole world that this is the best choice for me, then I have to act in every way as long as this choice applies to me. I have to act as though this is the best choice. There's no going back. I will never even consider that this is not good. I will always portray to everyone this is the best. And you must, every day of your life, wake up and prove to everyone that what you decided is the absolute best and you have no regrets. (laughs) Every day? That's why it's it's hilarious to me when people move out of California and then I see on social media, it's just like, I'm so glad we moved to Arizona or Texas or Tennessee or whatever. It's the best place on earth. I I never regret it. It's the best place I've ever lived. And I was like, who are you trying to convince? The reality is people move and make life-altering decisions and then they have to live with the consequences and deep down they're wondering, oh no, was this absolutely the right thing? And the fact that people in Texas are now trying to lure some of us to move with them is indication that it's not as satisfying as they thought. Right? But none of us have the guts to say that. We're all like, oh, God bless you. (laughs) (laughs) Which means when we have an infinite amount of choices producing in us all kinds of anxiety because we don't know if it's the right choice or if we made the choice, we have to prove to everyone it was the right choice. We become less content with the choices we made. You chose to marry this guy. You sure there's not something better out there? (laughs) So you married him when you were a size five, but now you're a size zero. You might want to think about moving on up. So you chose this shirt. You chose these jeans. They were the cheapest? They're the best made? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. So you made that decision thinking that it would be totally satisfying. And now all of a sudden as you contemplate your decision, you're realizing, oh no, this doesn't satisfy me as much as I thought it was going to. Oh no. And so you have to run to another exercise of choice to appease your anxiety for this other choice. And then eventually you have to make another choice to appease those last two. Which leads us to a fourth thing, which is freedom in this scale, individual freedom and and the individual choice kind of stuff. It robs you of freedom and you just don't realize it. Um, My example comes from the movie Frozen. Not Frozen 2, Frozen 1. (laughs) And Frozen, if you remember Elsa... She is the sister who has the power through touch to freeze things and she's locked in a castle all by herself with no human interaction. And then she sings a song. I'm not gonna sing it, I'm just gonna quote it. (laughs) I heard somebody like, oh yeah, let's get it. Nope. She sings this 
It's time to see what I can do. Test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. So here's Elsa locked away in her room, in her castle with no human interaction. And she lets it go. And there's no rules. And it's freedom. And the next scene, she's over here. Locked in a castle with no human interaction. Free. She's no more free than she was. She's exactly in the same situation. It's just the details have changed. And none of us watching this movie went, wait a minute. It's a lie. And yet we live it all the time. Where people tell us, if you choose this, you'll be free. And then all of a sudden you choose it and you're here and you're like, oh, I'm free. But you're in the same spot. Just the details are different. Once you choose an identity, you're stuck. I remember when I became a Christian in high school, I had to leave a lot of groups that formed my identity. And I also remember some of those people who I had to leave because of my Christianity, people who were like, bro, we're homies forever. Forever. It was a matter of months before they were no longer talking to me like that. And you're like, whoa. So if I am in this group giving an identity and value and then I leave that group, I don't want to be abandoned. And so basically we are enslaved to other people's opinions. Fifthly is this, is as we have infinite choices, get anxiety about these choices, and then we become less content with our choices and we realize we're not as free as we think. Another pitfall of this way of forming identity is that God then becomes your sidekick. I've never acted in a play, but um, I could have. I got a part and I was like, nah. Because my identity as a baseball player jock, I was like, nah, I can't be in a play. I'm gonna compromise everything I worked hard for. But one thing I learned is that as you're up and you're giving this very emotional kind of dialogue and you're acting and stuff, if you ever forget your lines, you can just go, line. And somebody from the back is, can tell you what your line is. And you're like, all right, and you say it. And we know that when the curtains close, it changes scenes and people, costume changes. There's somebody who works behind the scenes that no one sees. It's called the stagehand. They're in the shadows, they're lurking in the back but they provide costume changes and lines and they help you out when you need it. When we think that our life is all about individual choice and, and personal freedom, God is then relegated to your stagehand. You are the prime actor in your own play of which you have written and starred. God is just there to help you change costumes from time to time. Or if you forget something, he'll get you out of a bind. God is therefore a hindrance to you. He sometimes will get in the way of your dreams. So we gotta push them to the side so that way you can glorify yourself and enjoy yourself forever. But see, union with Christ changes everything about what I just talked about. Union with Christ changes everything. Let me give you a couple quick examples of how this works out. 
You see, instead of being paralyzed by an infinite amount of choices, when you are united to Christ, there's only one thing that you need to give your life for. Not thy will, but yours be done. That's it. If you live for that and you're willing to die for that, everything else is good. It's only one thing that matters. I love that thought that you can surrender to God any decision you have because God is the one who infinitely loves you, who infinitely cares for you, who has infinite power and has infinite knowledge and wisdom. So whatever decision you make, he has the power to change its outcomes. He has the wisdom to know where to take you and he has the love to want to do it all. So you can just choose. So college, uh, high school students, you better pick the right college or else your entire trajectory of your life is gonna be thrown off and you're gonna be a loser. That is what's being taught today. My response to that is God is bigger than your college choices. So pursue his will, make a decision, and then just go with it. Or as Augustine said, love God and then do whatever you want. Because if God, if loving God is number one, then everything else will be prioritized and will come into its proper place because you have first and foremost, it's God's glory, it's God's will, which is uppermost in my concern. Everything else will work itself out. I don't know about you, but that's like so freeing. Like, oh, wow. So if it's the wrong decision or a bad decision, God in his infinite wisdom and love will make sure to correct that and work that for my good. Oh, that's easy. All right, I guess you're not amazed by that. I don't know. So, secondly, think about the anxiety. If you don't have to worry about one decision shipwrecking your entire life and making, you, making it where you're just going to live in a camper van down by the Antioch River... If you don't have that burden on you and you don't have that anxiety on you, you're free. You're free. God is bigger than my decisions. God is bigger than me. God is bigger than my circumstances. And therefore, whatever decision you make, you can be content that even if this isn't the absolute best possible decision anyone could ever imagine, that's okay because God will work it for your good and his glory. So be content. It's fine. God's going to work it out. Trust him. Fourthly, as you form your identity around this idea that you are robbed of freedom if you allow outside voices to communicate to you, if you're united to Christ, then what you could realize is the limitations God places on your life are actually for your own good. Now, you and I don't get that because in our culture today, as Elsa saying, no limits. But think of it like this. Pretend you have a, a, a fish bowl and you have a, a, you know, like a goldfish or a beta fish. And one day you look at it and you're like, oh, that poor fish, all it can do is swim around in this little bowl. It needs to be free. It needs to be able to swim where it wants. I mean, we have a huge 2,000 square foot house. It should be able to swim wherever. And so you get it in your mind that you take a hammer and you look at this glass fish bowl and you're like, I'm going to set this fish free. 
you're free. What happens to that fish? It's going to die. And the reality is, friends, you need to hear this. You are not infinite. I know it's a shocker. But because you are not infinite, that means you are inherently limited. Just by being a human being, you are limited. One thing that has helped me over the years is this, as a senior pastor especially, I have falsely believed that God is displeased with me because I am not everywhere for everyone, as many people expect me to be, or I don't know everything about anything. And I've realized over the years, it's not about me having to repent because I'm not everywhere for everyone or I don't know everything about everything. I need to repent because I even entertain the thought that I could. Who am I? Brothers and sisters, who are you to think that you are infinite and you need no limits? But whatever the good God in his infinite wisdom decides to be proper limits for us, We should embrace them because he knows best. And it's for our flourishing. It's not because God hates you. And when you're united to Christ, you can trust that God is for you, not against you. And the limits he sets will end up being for your good and his glory. All right, we'll move on. This kind of identity... This new identity, which is found in having new life in Christ because you are a new creation. What it means is you have complete new life in Christ. Oh, forget that. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, you're united to Christ, you need to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds. In other words, your identity, your self-conception should be heavenly directed not earthly directed. Why? Well, because you died. It's no longer about glorifying yourself. You're dead. It's not about enjoying yourself. You're dead. But your true life is hidden. There is a hidden real you, but it's not inside of you. It's in Christ. That's completely opposite of what we hear about in our world today. You have a hidden self that you need to discover. No, there is a hidden life, but it's in Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. You see, this new life that God gives to us, it involves two parts. Number one is this. It it involves putting off the old self. I love what Paul says. He's talking about how you learn Christ. And he says... That you learn Christ, he's assuming that the Ephesians have learned Christ, they've heard about him, they were taught in him, the truth is in him, he's assuming these things. And he says, what you do when you learn Christ is you learn to put off the old self. He doesn't say life, he says self, your self-concept. You need to put away the old self that thought it was limitless and autonomous and absolutely free. You need to put that self away. That belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through evil desires. Instead, when you learn Christ, you learn to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You have a new self-conception. And that new self-conception is about putting on the new self. 
And what is that new self like? It is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is why it's absolutely a false gospel for people to say, when I follow my heart, I'm following God. Nope. When I'm just being me, God is pleased with that. Not necessarily. The new self is created in the form of Jesus and is filled with righteousness and holiness. If the real you needs to be sexually active with anyone whenever and however, nope, God's not happy with that. Can't be. That's not the new self God has created you to have. But this is something learned. Did you see it? Learned. So I love this verse. Paul says, I've learned. I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. You got an infinite amount of decisions. You're filled with anxiety. Paul says, I, I, I know I've learned. I've learned no matter what the situation is, I've learned how to be content. Whether I'm low, whether I'm abounding, whether, I don't know, I'm hungry, whether there's abundance, whether there's need, I've, I've learned the secret. <laughs> What's the secret sauce? Verse 13, you can jump higher and run faster and lift more with Jesus. Just kidding. Here's the secret. I can do all things. What are the all things? Bounding over a building with a single leap or whatever? No. In any situation, I know in the highs and lows of life, I know how to not be tossed to and fro, but how to stay relatively even keel, trusting that the highs of life and the lows of life do not mean God is loving me and hating me and I'm always in anxiety and flux. I know how to be in every situation confident and secure that God is gonna see me through. And how is that? I can do it through my union with Christ because in my union with Christ, God strengthens me. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You don't have the strength that you need to endure the ups and downs of life. It's something learned, though, brothers and sisters. You and I live in a culture of microwaved spirituality. I want to be like Jesus. I want a seven, you know, seven steps of the irrefutable laws of Christ awesomeness or whatever. And I want to be able to have it by Wednesday that I'm renewed and I'm new in Christ and I got everything figured out. What? It takes your entire life. It takes your entire life. Every hour of every day and every day of your entire life, you are in process. And so what Paul says to us is this. He says, I count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus is so infinitely worthy that I consider everything in comparison to him to be rubbish, he says, if I can only gain Christ. What is it that makes Jesus so valuable? What is it that Paul says is gain? He goes on in verse nine. My life, he says, is found in him. My true life is found in him. It's not found in some hidden secret compartment within myself that I discover through my, through my feelings and my pursuit of happiness. I find my truest life in him. It's outside of me. It's not in me. He says, it's not having a righteousness which is of my own. 
that comes from the law, but that which depends on faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It comes from God. It's not self-generated. And I love what Paul says here. Because some people are like, oh, you think you got it figured out. No, I don't. I'm just, I'm just, I feel, every time I preach, I'm like, oh, this is new. I didn't know this. And then I have the pleasure of standing before you and like telling you, this is what I've learned. Learn it with me. It's amazing. Paul says, it's not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. In other words, I pursue holiness because Jesus has purchased me. And so I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do is I forget what lies behind the old self and I strain forward to what lies ahead to the new self. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, I want Jesus. And that's why Paul says this. And we're rounding the corner to our conclusion. All of these identity markers in Ephesians 1 that tell us who we are in Christ, that give us our true and lasting life in Christ, by which we can be eternally content and infinitely joyous. All of this will well up into a singular purpose. And here's the purpose, that in everything in my life, it should be done to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Three times in those little verses, he says, it's all about the praise of God's glory. That's the purpose of life. So the Westminster Confession of Faith, the shorter, sorry, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, what is the purpose of humanity? In my own words. And the answer is, the purpose of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It is not about glorifying yourself and enjoying yourself forever. And what we realize, as I've already pointed out, the more you pursue the glorification of self and the enjoyment of self, the less satisfaction you will actually have. Again, middle school students, high school students, college students, young, young, young adults, you think I'm crazy by talking like this. I'm telling you, you're crazy for believing it. There is greater joy. There is greater satisfaction. There is greater fulfillment in Christ than anywhere else. Let me close with this. I love what the Apostle Paul says right here. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. I love these little, there's two acronyms I want to introduce to you if you don't know them. If you already know them, then you're fine. Two acronyms. When I was, became a Christian in the late 90s, I, I saw the bracelets of uh, WWJD. And they're like, this is life-changing. Nah, whatever. And then there was the other one, FROG, F-O-F-R-O-G. Fully relying on God. Okay. So there's two that have stood out to me over the years that I'm like, this, this helps me. One of them is grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. And I've just come to realize, gosh, in, in the spiritual realm, I am infinitely rich because of Christ's expense. Thank you, Lord. I have all that I need. 
And the second one is faith. F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all, I take him. And if you think about it, grace is when God gives you what you do not deserve at the expense of the life of his son. And to live in faith in the son of God is to look at all the world offers you and entices you and says, if you only had this, you'll be satisfied. And I go, no, 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 no. I forsake that. I take Christ. He will satisfy. And God is such that when he makes promises, he comes through for us. Anyone who puts their trust in him will not be disappointed, the the Psalms say. So how do you praise God and God's glory? Let me put it simply. Glory, as I've already mentioned, is the infinite worth of something. To praise something is to attach value to something. So when we praise God's glory, we are attaching value to the infinite character and perfection of who God is. God is amazing, and I praise him. So here's one application that most of you have already thinking about. Praise is singing. So we praise God when we sing, and that's how we glorify God. And I would say, yes, it's that, but it's so much more. You display the infinite worth of God in everything you do. Whether you eat or drink in word and deed, how you serve or don't serve, how you love and don't love, you are always displaying and revealing what is in your heart. God, this is how much I love you. I will serve the difficult to serve people. I will love the difficult to love people. I will eat in thanksgiving to you. I will drink in thanksgiving to you. I will do whatever it is I do in thanksgiving to you, whether it's good or whether it's evil, whether it's hard or whether it's gloriously awesome. In all things, to you be the glory forever and ever with our whole lives. So, Father, I do pray that you would help us. For the world has taught us and is currently discipling us that our hidden and secret self needs to be discovered through pursuing our pursuit of happiness, through our feelings about things. And Lord, what you have revealed to us is that this will not satisfy. There is a hidden self. There is a true life but it is hidden in Christ. It is for all who by faith will come to Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that you help us to understand that we as human beings are indeed precious in your sight. We are unique in your sight. You have made us this way. You have knit us together to be very unique. There's no one person exactly like another. And yet at the same time, you tell us, Lord, that we are most ourselves when we are united to Christ for he covers us he shields us he represents us before the father he fills us and animates us so that we can be more human by being united to you than we could ever be on our own so God would you teach us in our individual lives and together collectively as the church how we can better glorify you and enjoy you forever
because that is the purpose of our union with Christ. Teach us, God, how to apply this every day. Make us the kind of people that bring glory to Christ in all that we do. In his name we pray, amen.